Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. This is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 70. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark. We have only one story for you this week, and that is Flesh of the City, Bones of the World, by John R. Fultz. The story is a return to the clockwork automaton-populated steampunk nexus of realities known as the Obile, which you may remember from the tale... The Key to Your Heart is Made of Brass, which we featured way back in episode 60. John R. Fultz lives in the North Bay area of California, but grew up in Kentucky. His latest novel, The Testament of Tall Eagle, was released in June of this year by Ragnarok Publications. John's work includes the Books of the Shaper trilogy and the short story collection The Revelations of Zhang. His stories have also appeared in Year's Best Weird Fiction, Volume 1, Shattered Shields, Lightspeed, Year One, Way of the Wizard, and The Book of Cthulhu, Two. Learn more about him by following the links on the Triple F. The narrator for this story is yours truly. I'm sure you've all heard my bio a hundred times. If you're still curious, go and read it on the website. And now, Flesh of the City, Bones of the World, by John R. Fultz. The surgeon's hands are his most delicate instruments. From the slim silver bones of the ten fingers to the minute arrays of gears, cogs and springs set for agility and precision to the pale, elastic skin that stretches over the whole array, his hands are marvels of science. The rest of his body is no less amazing, no less detailed in its construction. A silver skeletal scaffold filled with organs of bronze and copper sheathed in that same supple skin without blotch or blemish. His patients take these things for granted, ignorant of the miracles of design that sustain their existence. But he is a surgeon, and he knows the secrets of human biology as intimately as he knows the mind and body of his own wife. While prepping for the operation, he recalls her silver skull laid bare 
and glimmering as she removed the demure porcelain mask that is her public face. The memory is from last night. They had danced in the courtyard of glass sculptures, bearing body and soul beneath a canopy of stars. Tonight they will celebrate the return of their son from five years at the Ministère d'Education. In a few days the boy will enter this chamber and at last become a man. The surgeon's opticals blink, and he returns to the present as his attendants wheel a youth into the conversion room. The surgeon turns his porcelain visage to greet the nervous patient. It is the face he always wears for operations, lean and handsome, with a strong chin and wide, warm smile. It was painted by one of the Herbile's finest maskers. Are you nervous? he asks the young man. Fifteen years old, just like his own son. So much like Alain that it frightens the surgeon, though he doesn't know why it should. The youth nods, tears flowing from his soft opticals. He is a weak thing of flesh and blood, hair and bone, an outdated organic construct. It is almost a miracle he has survived fifteen years in the Herbile, a miracle that any youth survives so long. The flesh is so vulnerable, so prone to injury, disease and entropy. Will it... will it hurt? the youth asks. No, says the surgeon. You will never hurt again. No pain, no bleeding, no hunger, no sickness. Won't that be wonderful? The youth nods and trembles. They're always this way before conversion. Relax, he tells the boy. It will soon be over and your new life will begin. The attendant administers a sedative and after a few moments the surgeon begins his work. Fluorescent lights gleam blue-white as he makes his incision at the centre of the forehead, then carves his way about the cranium with a scalpel of sterilised steel. He peels back the shaven skin that covers the dome of the skull, now the bone saw, following the same track as the scalpel. He removes cranial roof and the living brain glistens before him, a thing of beauty, a marvel that exceeds even the finest mechanisms of scientific design. Here lies the secret to immortality, creativity, humanity, the fleshy bottle that contains the very soul of man. He applies the topical solution and speaks the incantation of transferal, pronouncing each syllable with ingrained accuracy as he removes the brain from its bisected shell. He smoothly clips free the organic opticals and carries the brain to a second table. There lies the youth's new body, a perfect example of beatific aesthetics, a collection of ingenious machinery wrapped in a smooth, elastic sheath, exactly like his own. The silver skull wears no porcelain face yet. The youth will choose one when he awakens. The surgeon slides the brain into its new housing, connects the vitreous filaments to the new opticals, his mother chose green lenses, and seals the top of the silver skull with a soldering torch. Finally, he pulls the hood of elastic skin over the back of the skull and secures it with a permanent adhesive. He signals the attendant, who flips a switch, sending a current of cobalt energy leaping through the youth's new body. Gears groan and the body quivers until the charge dissipates. The attendant hands a brass heart key to the surgeon. He inserts it gently into the keyhole in the youth's chest and turns it, cranking it round and round until the green lenses begin to glow with faint light. As he primes the youth's new body, a trio of transporters enters the room and gathers up the youth's flesh and blood remains. They will remove it cleanly and dispose of the carcass somewhere. 
Three or four such operations a day creates a lot of cast or flesh. The surgeon is glad the disposal of such remnants is not part of his job. He's never thought of asking where they take the fleshy rubbish. Perhaps they cast them into the well of bones. He does not care enough to ask. The youth sits up on the table, his opticals shining bright as emeralds. He lifts his arms and bends his fingers, looking at his adult body for the first time. His bright skull is incapable of expression, but the surgeon sees wonder in the flaring green opticals. He is used to this moment of enlightenment. It always makes him proud of a job well done. How do you feel? he asks the patient. The green opticals blink and stare at him. Brilliant, says the youth. With some coaxing, he stands on his new legs. The attendant leads him toward the door and his expectant parents. You are truly a beatific now, he tells the lad. A man. Thank you, doctor, he pauses at the door. Whale, the surgeon says through his smiling mask. Thank you, Dr. Whale, says the boy who is now a man. The surgeon bows at the waist. His patient disappears through the swinging doors. No more today, doctor, says the attendant. Excellent, says Dr. Whale, stripping off his plastic gloves and surgical gown. Summon a coach, if you would be so kind. The attendant nods and leaves the room. A few drops of blood are all that is left of the youth's fleshly body. Whale stares at the crimson stains. What a piece of work is man, he thinks. How frail and tender, how prone to destruction. Not any more, he says aloud to himself. In the lobby, the youth's family embraces him, their porcelain smiles wide and coloured with cheer, rose-tinted cheeks and scintillating opticals. The father is telling his son to keep his heart key safe and clean, that he must wind himself back to full strength every morning. The son holds the brass key proudly in his hands, it is the key to immortality. Dr. Whale exits through the main doors of the Ministère des Sciences. A black rain falls across the herbiel as his carriage approaches. A pale sun sinks behind the silhouettes of rusted and jagged towers. The Ministère itself is a gleaming spire of glass and steel behind him, a monument to modernity, rising from a landscape of decayed and crumpled metal. Two clockwork horses draw the carriage through the muddy street. Above and behind them on the driver's bench sits a steaming clatterpox, its barrel-shaped body patterned with rust and salt incrustations. Its rod-like arms pull on the reins, bringing the carriage to a halt before the surgeon, who has wrapped himself in a grey overcloak. Soiled rain drips from the rim of his top hat. The clatterpox driver vents a gout of smoke from tubes along its bulky frame, a sound like six teapots gone to boil at once. It swivels its oval head and focuses smudged opticals. Coach for the doctor, asks the clatterpox, its voice a rasp of scraping metal. Whale nods, and the driver leaps down to open the door. Its joints creak, and Whale thinks the poor fellow might fall apart at any moment. Still, he climbs into the dry, velvet-lined interior and doffs his drenched hat and cloak. He loosens a few buttons on his waistcoat and watches the rusted zone roll by as the horses pull him through the squalid streets. Crowds of clatterpox wander the avenues, going from factories to taverns, ambling through the red clouds of rust and oily rain. The surgeon long ago stopped asking himself how people can live like this. A group of naked children, five of them, splash ecstatically in a mud puddle at the mouth of an alley. A shouting clatterpox, their mother, father, drives them into a nearby hovel. 
Whale knows that those children, if they survive another ten or twelve years, will undergo their own conversions. But unlike the privileged sons and daughters of beatifics, they will become clumsy, lumbering clatterpocks. For those who cannot afford the services of a surgeon, the only choice is the mechanics. Should these people even be allowed to raise children? His wife had once asked. Perhaps not, Whale had told her. It doesn't seem fair. But like everything else in the Abile, it was not the beatifics who made decisions. The law came only from the potentates, and the law was incontestable. As the carriage leaves the rusted zone in its rows of dilapidated factories, it passes into the rolling greenery of the good hills. Mansions of ivy-smothered stone dot the hills, one estate after another of sculpted gardens, cast-iron fences and meandering avenues dotted with gas lamps in baroque shapes. Night has fallen. And the windows of the great houses gleam with orange warmth, the light of blazing hearths spilling across lawns set with pathways of ground glass. These are the homes of beatific families, ancestral estates designed with grace and beauty to house the Urbiles' most graceful and beautiful citizens. The carriage pulls through the gate of the Whale Estate and up the curving driveway. That same kind of firelight flickers from the windows of the house. The surgeon's heart gears speed up a bit as he imagines his wife and son waiting for him inside. Home. He exits the carriage. The window's glow caresses his porcelain smile. He drops a single ruby brilliant into the driver's iron palm, and the clatterpox approximates a quick bow with its bulky frame. The mechanical horse's hooves click against the cobbled drive as the surgeon opens the door that bears the whale sigil in pressed gold. In the vestibule and the parlour beyond. There is no sign of wife or son. Calmea, Alain, he calls out, removing his hat and coat. Calmea, louder now. The house is stonily silent. Then the rush of padded feet on the carpeted floor. His wife enters the foyer, a single candle burning in her hand. There is no joy in her amber opticals. She wears a face of sculpted ceramic sorrow. What's the matter? He asks. He is. Ill, she says, a hand on his shoulder. They rush to the bedroom where young Alain lies under blankets, sweating and moaning. The boy's pale skin is covered in purple blotches. The frailty of flesh. Calmea tells him of the carriage that brought Alain home from school. He seemed fine at first, but soon began coughing. He would not eat the meal she prepared and collapsed in the den. He's been lying here ever since, she says. I sent a summons to the ministère. But they said you'd already left. Must have arrived just after I departed, he says. He examines Elaine's pupils, pulling his soft opticals open gently. They are glazed and unhealthy. What is this sickness? He has never seen such symptoms. He mutters an incantation of health, but it has no effect. Even as he watches, the dark spots grow larger on his son's flesh. He administers an elixir of prevention with a golden spoon. No response. What can we do? Kamea asks him. The surgeon sits quietly for a while, staring at his poor organic son. He remembers the day they received this bundle of joy, the angel of the potentates with its flaring feathered wings, its heroic shoulders, its smooth and featureless head. It had come to them as expected on the middle of the fifth day in the year of the basilisk. They were in the back garden when it descended, shedding sunlight from its pristine limbs. In its strong arms lay a tiny being of pink flesh, 
swaddled in linen and sleeping peacefully. Alain. The faceless angel placed the infant directly into Carmea's arms, as was the custom. They were so exhilarated by the baby's presence they did not see the angel rise into the sky and fly back toward the great hill where stands the palace of the potentates. "'What can we do?' Carmea asks him again, grabbing his arm. "'Rid him of this weak flesh,' says the surgeon. "'His conversion was due in twelve days. I'll do it tomorrow instead.' "'Is that legal?' she asks. He senses fear like poison in her voice. I'll write up a special permit tonight, he says. Send a runner for a coach an hour before dawn. Conversion will save him from this wasting disease, whatever it is. Father? Alain's blind opticals flicker open. They are blue like his father's, yet so soft. I'm here, son. He squeezes the boy's limp hand. Help me. You're going to be fine, Elaine. In a few hours you will be a man, free from the sickness, from all sickness. Elaine shakes his head. The walls, he mutters. Skin on the walls. Whale looks at his wife, then back to his dying son. What walls, he asks. Could this be some clue to the origin of his sickness? Elaine swallows, coughs. Bloody spittle stains his lips, which his mother wipes with a damp cloth. On the avenue of Copperlangs, I, I had to stop. I'm sorry, father. You had to stop where? For what? Tell me, son. The buildings, the rust, the metal. It was all covered over, covered with flesh, some kind of skin, pulsing muscles beneath the surface. The clatterbox was staring. Some ran away in fear, but it grew larger as I watched it. I had to stop. I had to touch it. The surgeon's heart skips a cog. What did you touch? Something on the avenue of copper lungs. The flesh, mutters Elaine. Walls of living flesh, father. Flesh like me. How could it? How could it? How? How? He fades away. Consciousness lost beneath a wave of bodily stress. What is he talking about? asks Carmea. The surgeon shakes his head. I have no idea. Stay with him. I must draft the permit. He shuffles down the hallway to his library, where parchment and a quill pen await his efforts. As he pens the document that will save his son's life, the boy's words ring in his mind, fireflies set loose in the organic folds of his metal-encased brain. Walls of living flesh. In the morning, his son's suppurating skin is the colour of charcoal. There is a sickly sweet stench about Elaine. He appears to be decaying. The surgeon says nothing of this to Calmia. Like her, he has donned a grim set face. He hopes he will have cause to wear a smiling face again after this day. After hastily winding their heart keys, they load Elaine into a carriage by gaslight. Carmea insists upon travelling with him to the ministère, and he cannot refuse her. The driver is another clatterpox, but the coach and horses might be the same ones that brought him home last night. The vehicle rolls through the green lanes and descends into the serrated mass of the rusted zone. Faster, he shouts at the driver. The clatterpox complies, but hits a mass of early morning traffic on the street of coils. The surgeon curses the crowds of steaming mechanoids. Carmea clutches his hand. Their son lies dying on the floor of the coach, rotting. 
In the smoggy glow of sunrise, the coach finally reaches the Ministère of Science. The surgeon calls for attendance and they carry Alain inside, prepping the conversion room for an emergency procedure. Dr. Whale pacifies his huffing superior by handing him the carefully prepared permit. He does not wait to watch the man sign it, but rushes instead through the doors of the CR. A top-of-the-line body was commissioned for his son months ago. Using it now, twelve days ahead of the ordained time, should pose no problem. Attendants prepare it for the procedure as sedatives rush into Alain's purple veins. The surgeon works feverishly, but with no less precision than any patient demands. The attendants mumble behind their impassive ceramic faces. The state of Alain's body horrifies them. It has already begun to dry. Soon it will be only a desiccated husk. The surgeon works his bone-saw magic, then drops the tool as the cranial roof comes loose. The attendants moan, or curse, he isn't sure. He cannot hear them. He hears only the terrible shrieking of his wife, who looks into the CR from a round observation port. Alain's young brain is neither pink nor glistening. It is black and putrid. Atrophied, little more than a fist-sized lump of rancid meat. There is nothing left of his son to save. The surgeon falls to his knees. A keening sound fills the room and he recognises it somewhere in the back of his mind as his own scream. Dr. Whale is wailing. Attendants carry him away from the CR while transporters in special hazard suits carry away Alain's shriveled remains. Whale breaks free of the attendant's supporting arms and slams his skull against the wall, shattering his porcelain face to bits. His silver skull face continues to shriek as they carry him into an isolation room. He does not see what becomes of his poor wife. If his opticals were organic, he would be weeping. But he can only scream until a gear in his throat slips. He lies in the isolation room, twitching and moaning until oblivion claims him. Sleep offers little help. He dreams of a lane rotting to death before him, skin falling in chunks from a skeleton of brittle white bone. He wakes up and slams his head against the wall again, seeking to pulp the brain inside, but his miraculous body is made too well. In the depths of more mad dreaming, he sees faces of carven stone staring at him with diamond opticals. The stone is alive, and the faces speak with eerie voices. It's all a lie, they tell him. The potentates have bound you in a web of illusion. To see the truth, you must look beyond who you are, what you are. How their stone lips can move and produce sound, he has no idea. But this is a dream, so he accepts it. He does not like their accusations. You are as dead as your son, who was not your son at all. Conversion is death. The beatific lifestyle is a sham. You are all walking corpses. Accept this and no freedom. Accept this and defy the tyranny of the potentates. Where does the new flesh come from, Dr. Whale? Where does the lost flesh go? All sense of time is lost while he dreams. Someone eventually comes in, takes the heart key from his pocket and winds him back to full strength. By this alone he knows that twenty-four hours have passed. Wishing they would just let his body wind down and his brain expire, he fights against this, but four attendants hold his limbs. 
The supervisor tells him the key will be waiting for him when he feels better. When they leave, he sits quietly for some hours. Walls of living flesh. The words of Elaine are what bring him back to sanity. His grief transforms gradually into anger. What was it on the avenue of copper lungs that his son touched? What was it that killed him? Walls of living flesh. When he speaks calmly again, attendants summon the supervisor, who interviews him for an hour, and then decides to let him go. He gives the surgeon back his heart key, along with heartfelt condolences. He also insists on a six-week leave of absence. The Ministère de Science will pay for Alain's funeral. The diseased body, however, has already been disposed of. They will have to use his beatific body, the unwound one that never housed his brain. The surgeon nods, accepts an impassive face from the supervisor's personal collection, and says whatever he needs to say to get out on the street again. Go home and be with your wife, the supervisor says. She needs you. He nods, shakes the man's hand. Now Dr. Whale stands in waistcoat and top hat in front of the minister, but he doesn't call for a carriage. Instead, he walks, weaving between the huffing exhausts of clatterpocks and steam-driven lorries. He slides his heart key into his breast pocket, alongside the key that would have belonged to Alain. He clutches a scalpel in his right fist. Nobody saw him take it from the minister, and his booted feet carry him toward the avenue of copper lungs. The streets grow less crowded but more dangerous as he walks through the lowering sun. Abandoned foundries crumble slowly into dust alongside the paved lanes. Clatterpocks rattle in and out of drinking establishments and doxy houses. Bloaters float above the crowds, siphoning stray thoughts into their spherical bodies through quivering, worm-like tendrils. The few beatifics to be found on this side of town wear their collars up to meet their hat-brims, scarves hiding all but their narrowed opticals. Some hide themselves deep inside hooded cloaks, the handles of clubs or blades visible on their hips. The corroded walls of metal seem to close in about the surgeon as he walks. The sky has taken on a ruddy colour as if it too has rusted. Gangs of rowdy clatterbocks roam the alleys, exchanging cryptic tweets and hoots of compressed steam. Their hearts are miniature furnaces that burn tiny chunks of anthracite. Finally, he rounds the corner and sees the avenue of copper lungs running east to west before him. Looking back, he can barely see the shimmering steel and glass of the Ministère de Science rising from the metropolis of ancient tangled metal. Now the wind picks up as he steps out onto the avenue, which is strangely deserted. Shops have closed here, and taverns have nailed their doors. Something has driven everyone away. He walks into the emptiness, and a whirlwind of rust blows tattered broadsheets down the sidewalk. One wraps about his foot. He picks up the crumpled news rag and reads the headline. Mysterious flesh grows across southern quarter. Part of the ensuing article is readable, the rest of it having been smeared to illegibility by some acrid puddle. Foundries 17, 34 and 53 are suspending operations due to an unexplained phenomenon along the eastern flank of the southern quarter today, centering on the avenue of copper lungs. Seemingly overnight, a vast blanket of what appears to be organic flesh. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market has grown rapidly to smother the three factories and surrounding establishments, including a vent shop, two taverns and a bronzing outlet. Authorities were quick to arrive and cordon off the scene, but not before several clatterpox investigated personally. Many of those first-hand witnesses claimed the flesh was alive with muscular tension when touched. Gendarmes arrested three citizens who refused to flee the cordoned area, all clatterpox, and traffic has been indefinitely suspended along the avenue. Tribune Anteos had no comment when contacted about the Spatzmal, as some engineers are calling this outbreak of flesh, but in a statement he promised the swift and immediate execution of anyone foolish enough to... The rest of the piece is a melange of runny black ink that reminds the surgeon of Alain's decaying skin. He casts the paper aside and climbs the new metal fence placed by gendarmes to block the street. An electricity in the air glides about his face and limbs, a growing pressure that signals the inevitable rise of a rabidity. He half runs down the street toward the closed factories. They seem hung with great flapping sheets or tarps of a torn and ragged substance. Red lightnings flare among the dark clouds as he comes to stand before the great wall of rotting flesh. The sound of the manifesting rabidity howls in his ears. The sound of reality splitting like punctured elastic skin. The wind tears at the huge curtains of necrotic flesh hanging from the walls of the avenue. This place was literally smothered by flesh. A spatzmal. He walks against the wind, following the length of the dead flesh walls. They are putrefying exactly as Elaine's own skin had done, withering and drying like his beautiful brain. Standing in the middle of the phenomenon, he takes it all in. These curtains of flesh grew like a rapid fungus, over roofs, smokestacks, walls, alleys, pavements and lampposts, as if the rusted zone was trying to grow its own skin but got the process horribly wrong. He walks upon the putrid, jellied flesh that smothers the surface of the street. It squishes unwholesomely beneath his boots. Rotten. All rotten. Where did it come from? He sees again the stone faces from his weird dream. Where does the new flesh come from? Where does the old flesh go? This is the incident that fascinated Alain so that he had to stop his coach and get out to touch it. His own feeble flesh must have caught the wave of bacteria that causes this rapid decomposition. Now the flesh hangs here, quarantined like a plague virus, and his son is gone. The rabidity reaches full force, 
and the wind nearly knocks him face down onto the rotting carpet of flesh. He steadies himself and watches a vacuity open in the air nearby. A split in the fabric of reality tears itself into being above the flesh-drowned street. A saffron glow emanates from within the fissure. Some distance away, another vacuity emits a blue-green light, and farther away there are others, each a random portal to some distant reality. The surgeon's green opticals stare through the vacuity nearest him. The world beyond is an alien realm, a broad sweep of sandy plain with obelisks of rock rising into a mauve sky. Nine moons float about the zenith of that wild dimension, and clouds of golden dust move across the wasteland. Colossal creatures lumber between the spires of natural rock, things with horned heads and pendulous jaws. Even on this side of the acuity he feels the rumbling of that other ground beneath the tread of the shaggy behemoths. Do they recognise this portal into a separate reality? Or are they dumb brutes, ignorant of all thought? Nevertheless, they stampede on through the golden waste. If one of them stumbles into the vacuity, it may burst into the surgeon's dimension. If that happens, he will be crushed beneath its awesome weight. He moves back, away from the sucking pressure of the multiversal fracture, before it can draw him tumbling like a grain of sand into that forlorn landscape. The roaring wind flows into the vacuity, and he strains against it, using all the power of his grinding leg gears to reach a safe distance. Finally, the storm subsides, and the vacuity snaps shut with a peal of thunder. All about the city, similar thunders roar as dimensional wounds repair themselves. The evening calm returns. The surgeon stares again at the immense blanket of rotted flesh encasing the avenue of Coppolans. When all this rots away, there will be nothing left that might answer the why of his son's death. How long before this Spatzmal flesh is nothing more than muddy pulp to be swept into the sewers? He must take a tissue sample, get it to the laboratory. Maybe he will find an answer, some clue as to why the flesh appeared, why it decayed, why it took Elaine. With the scalpel, he carves a rectangular piece of oozing blackened flesh from a defunct gaslight, wraps it carefully in a silken handkerchief, and tucks it into his coat pocket. As he turns to go, a blast of white light assaults his opticals. The sound of a steam engine grinds near somewhere behind the lights. Tall, dark shapes rush forward, pointing rifles. Gendarmes. They grab him and hustle him towards a six-wheeled lorry, ignoring his pleas. "'I'm a surgeon!' he shouts but their grip is tighter than iron screws. They shove him into the back of the wagon and slam the doors. Two of them sit inside with him, the barrels of their rifles pointed directly at him. Below their black stovepipe hats, their faces are little more than clusters of dark optical lenses, each of which swivels independently in various directions. They wear trench coats and gloves the colour of midnight. The lorry rumbles across the fleshy street, through a barrier gate, and into the streets of the western quarter. I was only doing research says the surgeon. They ignore him. Where are you taking me? To the tribune, one of the gendarmes finally speaks. His voice is a transistorized buzz, as if broadcast on some distant wavelength. Do not attempt to flee. We will shoot to kill. The surgeon sits quietly, his fist wrapped about the handkerchief in his pocket and the decaying evidence wrapped inside. Deep inside the Ministère de Justice, gendarmes haul the surgeon before the golden bench where Tribune Anteo sits in judgment. The crimson and black banner bearing the sigil of the potentates hangs on the wall. The Tribune's official robes are white, as is the long veil that obscures his face. 
His ruby opticals gleam faintly through the fabric, twin points of rosy light. Above the veil, a powdered wig hides the rest of his thin skull. His fingers are long and sharp, covered in jewelled rings, and one of them points directly at the surgeon. You entered a zone of prohibition, says the tribune, his voice deep with power. The surgeon recognises it from a hundred transistor broadcasts over the years. It carries far more weight in person, seeming almost to vibrate the walls of the chamber. How do you plead? The surgeon can only speak in a rasping whisper, thanks to the damaged gear in his throat. I was doing research. How do you plead? asks the tribune again. Guilty or not guilty? I had a reason, begins the surgeon. Your reasons are of no consequence, says the tribune. You broke a tribunal decree. This court serves the potentate's justice, and that justice will be served. Not guilty, then, says the surgeon. The tribune lifts his gavel. The plea is noted. This court finds you guilty of criminal trespassing and sentences you to death. Wait. A new voice rings through the chamber before the gavel falls. It is a voice the surgeon recognises. The supervisor of the Ministère de Science stands nearby, escorted by a pair of private gendarmes. May I approach the bench, Your Honour? asks the supervisor. The tribune nods, and the two personages confer in whispered conversation. The surgeon stands anxious before the bench and wonders why the supervisor is here. His hand clenches the rotting flesh encased in his handkerchief. He still has the scalpel in his pocket as well. The gendarmes did not search him. Perhaps they have no fear of a mere surgeon. Six of them, heavily armed, line the chamber walls. Finally, the tribune nods his veiled head and speaks again. Dr. Whale, you are hereby remanded to the custody of Supervisor Guillaume. Your sentence is indefinitely suspended pending further reports. Do you understand? The surgeon nods. The gavel falls upon the golden bench with a sharp crack, and the supervisor leads Whale into an adjoining room where only his two personal guards are present. How did you know I was here? asks the surgeon. I have friends among the gendarmes, says Supervisor Guillaume. You are very lucky. The surgeon would smirk if his porcelain face allowed it. He blinks instead. Forgive me, says the supervisor. You have suffered a terrible loss. But I believe in you, Dr. Whale. I believe in your talents. The supervisor's face is a grim ceramic expression, a serious mask meant for entertaining serious discussions. His top hat is red with a black velvet band. I am grateful, says the surgeon, but, but why did you intervene? Because, says the supervisor, I was wrong in asking you to take a leave of absence. You are not that kind of man. I have a job for you. I am a surgeon. No longer. Now you will be so much more a scientist. I don't understand. What happened to my son? Come with me, says the supervisor. I will explain everything. You will see that there is hope for you and your family, for us all. Where are we going? asks the surgeon, pacing behind. To the palace, says Supervisor Guillaume. A carriage waits outside for the supervisor. Driven by a third private gendarme, inside its opulent interior, the supervisor offers Whale a glass of transparent lubricant. The surgeon refuses, but Guillaume insists. Whale lifts his porcelain mask and drinks the liquid down quickly. 
the carriage trundles along the cobbled lane, heading into the good hills and the great prominence at the centre of the Urbile. Good for the gears and cogs, says the supervisor, finishing his own glass. What is this all about? asks the surgeon. As you may have guessed by now, I am far more than a supervisor, says Guillaume. I work for the potentates, Special Sciences Initiative. Why are you taking me to the palace? To show you our latest experiment. The coach travels up a long and winding incline. Through the octagonal window, the surgeon sees the twisting silhouettes of mighty trees, the interior forests surrounding the massive walls of the potentate citadel. Soon the vehicle leaves the moon-washed forest and enters a tunnel-like gate leading to an inner courtyard. The obscure shadows of iron statues pass by the windows. At last the coach comes to rest and the surgeon steps out into an immense yard of mossy flagstones. The palace of the potentates rises before them, a sleeping leviathan of grey stone dressed in tapestries of moss and ivy. The size of those stony towers dwarves even the steel spires of the ministeriels. Inside this colossal conglomeration of granite there might exist a second city, one more ancient and mysterious than the Urbile itself. The palace is a carven mountain at the centre of everything, and the surgeon stands humbled in its inky shadow. In the gloom ahead he sees a vision of those stone faces from his nightmare, looking out at him from the very walls of the palace. They speak to him again. Neither the supervisor nor his guards seem to notice. The potentates have bound you in a web of illusion. To see the truth you must look beyond. Accept this and defy them. The faces disappear as the supervisor leads him through an iron gate into a draughty hall at the base of a soaring tower. Then a series of heavy doors brings them into a great round-walled hall with a ceiling high enough to be lost in shadow. Perhaps this entire tower is hollow. Beatific technicians walk about the rows of intricate machinery, adjusting tubes of glass and electrode displays. A confusing network of wires and coloured glass hangs like a stained-glass window above the contraptions, connected to the machines by coils of cable and rubber-bound cords. This room, the surgeon realises in an instant, is one giant machine. Welcome to Project Viand, says the supervisor, doffing his red hat and gloves. He babbles on and on about the technological skill of himself and his technicians, but the surgeon understands little of it. His opticals roam the intricate arrays of levers, gears, switches and transformers. The great machine is as intricate as any beatific body. And two days ago we came as close to success as we have ever been, says the supervisor. Two days ago? asks the surgeon. Two days ago something killed my son. The supervisor motions to a great oval of glass nestled at the heart of the machine. Through this multiversal lens, we have discovered a world comprised entirely of living flesh, says Guillaume, an organic dimension. The surgeon focuses his opticals on the man's dull ceramic visage. Our goal is to enable the successful transversal of this world flesh into our own realm, so we introduced a viral strain of this organic matter into an area of the rusted zone. The Spatzmal, the supervisor shakes his head. We call it the organism. It seemed to thrive for the first few hours, growing at a pace we hardly expected, and then something happened, some side effect of the transversal process. The organism began a rapid decay. Elaine's words rang hollow in the surgeon's skull. Walls of living flesh. I had to stop. I had to 
touch it. We had no choice but to cordon off the affected area and place it under quarantine, says the supervisor. Why? asks the surgeon. His fist squeezes the steel scalpel in the pocket of his waistcoat. Why bring this organism into the herbile at all? The supervisor stands silent for a moment. He turns away from the surgeon and surveys the technicians at their work. The potentates have certain needs, Whale. I'm going to tell you one of the herbile's great secrets. Go ahead, tell me. The supervisor whispers. The potentates are organic beings. Like every other citizen, the surgeon has seen the potentates in person once a year during the parade of iniquities, when all seven ride through the streets on great mechanical steeds. He remembers their bulbous skulls, their black robes and thick veils, the golden chains decorating their vestments. Their limbs were inhumanly long, their oblong heads balanced on thin necks. Only their shadowy opticals are ever visible to the parade crowds. Sometimes they wave with incredibly long, gloved fingers at the populace that fears and adores them. No one would ever guess their fleshly secret. What exactly are you saying? asks the surgeon, though he begins to suspect. Organic beings require sustenance, says the supervisor. The potentates are entirely carnivorous. They desire only meat of a certain grade. Neurons blaze inside the surgeon's fleshy brain. His opticals blink and his gears moan and creak as if his parts were suddenly aged and worn. This organism, this transversal... Was an attempt, says the supervisor, is an attempt to provide an endless alternative food supply for the potentates. The surgeon has no words. If he could vomit up the contents of his clockwork guts, he would do so. But he hasn't vomited since he was a child, a small boy, frail and covered in tender flesh. We are so close, Whale, says the supervisor, so close to perfecting the process. This world flesh is the key. Finding it was the real breakthrough. We need to assemble a process for countering the rapid cellular degeneration that our reality creates. The next piece of the organism we bring through will have a better chance of... You said alternative, says the surgeon. Alternative food supply. Yes, that's correct. What do they eat now? asks the surgeon. The supervisor sighs. The surgeon grabs him by the shoulders. A gendarme steps forward, but Guillaume waves him back. What do they eat? asks the surgeon in his rasping, weary voice. What do you think? says the supervisor. The surgeon remembers the transporters, hauling brainless carcasses out of the conversion room. Three or four a day. Again he sees the faces of living stone and hears their voices. Where does the new flesh come from, Dr. Whale? Where does the lost flesh go? All those bodies. They come here, to the palace, whispers the supervisor, for processing. The surgeon slumps, and the supervisor helps him into a chair. Now do you see the value of our work? asks the supervisor. How important it is? Have you ever wondered what causes the rabidities? Why these portals to distant worlds keep opening at random throughout the abile? 
They are side effects of this machine. It's all about Project Viand. All our bodies. All our flesh and bones. I need you on this project, Whale. Your brilliance can help us find a solution. What about the babies? asks the surgeon, remembering the white angel. Elaine's tiny pink face. Where do they all come from? Harvested, says the supervisor, from other realities, places where life has nearly expired. Bringing them into this world is a gift. Their worlds are ruined or dying. We bring them into the Arbeel and give them life, families, immortality. Where does the new flesh come from? Where does the lost flesh go? Whale, don't you understand? demands Guillaume. If we succeed, there will be no more need for conversions. A new organic age will begin. All we have to do is find another way to feed the potentates. The surgeon pulls forth the scalpel and drives it into Guillaume's left optical. Its steel tip enters the supervisor's brain and the blade lodges there. Technicians run for cover as the gendarmes fire their rifles. Thunder echoes through the tower. A bullet grazes the surgeon's shoulder, tearing open his elastic skin. There is no pain. He leaps upon the nearest gendarme, turning him to take his comrade's next bullet in the chest. The explosive shell scatters bronze and copper debris across the floor. The surgeon runs into the heart of the chamber, winding between banks of machinery. Don't shoot! The machine! Someone yells, but the surviving gendarme ignores him. A console explodes as the surgeon runs past it. He flees through a random series of doors, losing himself in the dank corridors of the outer tower. He hides behind a ventilation grate as a squad of gendarmes march past. Whispered voices lead him on. Eventually he finds his way outside, and in the light of the silver moon he creeps through the courtyard, passing the iron statues, and hides himself in the mud behind a green hedge. There is commotion within the tower, although the rest of the palace seems lost to silence and shadow. Somewhere within that ancient immensity, the potentates are dining on the flesh of the city. He takes the rotted Spatzmau flesh from his pocket and casts it into a drainage ditch full of stagnant water. When the courtyard gate opens, a gendarme-driven carriage rolls down the lane and exits the palace grounds. Nobody notices the surgeon clinging to the back of the vehicle, his clothing soiled by dark mud. At the edge of the forest, he drops off the carriage, rolling into a pile of rotten leaves. He rises, filthy and crouching like some beast from an ancient world of flesh and bone. He runs across the hills, trying to outrace the carriage. Just before dawn, he reaches the broken door of his estate. The tracks of steam lorries have left muddy ruts in the lawn. Inside the house, he finds the corpse of his wife lying among the shambles of furniture. Kalmea's silver skull blossoms like a rose where the exploding shell hit it. Headshots were the gendarme's speciality, the quickest and most efficient way to kill a beatific. Their silver skulls could not protect the delicate brain from such firepower. The brain. The last refuge of a stolen humanity. A humanity fed to seven imperious carnivores. He smashes a gas lamp and winds his heart key in the light of the roaring flames. He leaves the mansion burning behind him. Wrapped in a black cloak and hood, an antique blade at his side, he follows the voices singing a clear, high refrain in his mind. Now you see the truth. Now you see yourself. He stalks carefully through several neighbourhoods in the small light of early morning until he finds the place. No family has lived in the overgrown estate for decades. The name on the iron gate is rusted and faded. 
The mansion beyond is little more than a ruin. Shattered windows, fallen beams, crumbled walls of blackened stone. In the distance, the mountainous bulk of the palace rises from its central hill. On the opposite horizon, the uneven skyline of the rusted zone straddles the lower world. The obil is a broken and decaying apparatus that runs on and on, fueled by ignorance and deception. He lifts a fallen wall and discovers a stairwell that spirals deep into the earth. Far beneath the ruined manor, he enters a chamber of damp stone. Along the walls, great carven faces stare at him with shimmering opticals. The floor of the vault is littered with glassy stones of every colour, a vast fortune in brilliance left here to gather mould. Some of the giant faces grin at him, others frown. The minister disdon. Now you see, one of them says, it's all a lie. The surgeon nods. What must I do? he asks. With granite tongues they whisper ancient wisdom. case of physician heal thyself indeed, as well as the universe as you know it while you're at it. If you're enjoying John's shattered mirror approach to societal dysfunction, you may like to know that a third Erbil story, The Rude Mechanicals and the High Women, appears in this month's issue of Fungi magazine, and that John is currently working on a novel set there as well. We hope you're all enjoying the cover art that's been on our homepage since the 4th of August. It's titled The Mechanic Magmin and is provided to us courtesy of Kyle Anderson. Kyle is an art director and concept artist, and he is currently creating a visionary book series called Seven Transmissions that is now available on Amazon.com. You can learn more about him by reading our website, or you can go to his website, kyleanderson.com. He's also on Facebook. Thanks very much, Kyle, for letting us use your wonderful art. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. Be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website and are very easy to use. By the way, our thanks to everyone who recently made a donation to keep our sister podcast, Tales to Terrify, up and running. Your efforts have prevailed, and Tales to Terrify is safe, for now. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F. They always make me smile. So, dear listeners, don't forget to wind your heart key. Every day, like clockwork. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.